First Thessalonians chapter two, verses thirteen to sixteen. We'll go ahead and read this passage for us first. I'm reading from the ESV. This is God's word. And we also give, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. The Thessalonians here, we get right from the honest start in verse 13, that they received what they heard from Paul, what they heard from Timothy, what they heard from Silas. They received this word from them and they, they knew, they took it for what it really was, not word of man, but the word of God. They decided that what these men were teaching was divine in nature. Let's, let's consider the impact of what this really means. Because all of us here, we hear so many talking heads every day, right? We got the radio show hosts. We got political debates, podcasts. And, and all these opinion pieces out there just constantly talking to us. I mean, and... We, we even have our own favorite preachers, right? We go to conferences that they listen to our favorite preachers. I just came back from Shepherd's Conference that's going on right now and, and just hearing speaker after speaker and each one of them, each talking head that we listen to, they, they speak because they believe in what they're saying, right? They believe in what they're saying. But how many of us, as we're listening to different people, different opinions, how many of us can, can hear that and say to ourselves that this, what I'm hearing now is not just someone's opinion, it's not just someone's perspective. No, what, what I'm hearing right now is so much more than that. What I'm hearing right now must be the word of God. And, and so we get then the sense of divine purpose and authorship behind what we hear. Now here in First Thessalonians, when, when Paul is talking about the word of God, we, we know that he went to Thessalonica. We know that he preached the gospel to them. He shared with them the gospel of Christ. Right, back then, um, what he was able to preach to them was simply Christ crucified. And then we see that in Acts, Chapter 17, verse 2, when Paul and his ministers are in Thessalonica, it says that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. And so the scriptures during this time, we have to remember, was most likely just the Old Testament, right? The New Testament wasn't written yet. So it's just the Old Testament. But Paul was teaching them, showing them Christ from the scriptures. 
And not only that, we, we know from the letter of 1 Thessalonians as we continue on in our series, we will see that Paul is not just teaching them about you know, Jesus' death and resurrection, but he's also teaching them application of what that meant, how it fulfilled the Old Testament, and how the church ought to live now. And while he's doing all that, Paul, Paul was also writing letters, divine letters that, can, that will make up the New Testament. And so while what the word of God here means in this context for, for the Thessalonians was probably just the Old Testament, for us today, we have the entire Bible, the, both the New and the Old Testament. And this book has been, was been passed down to us from generation to generation. And for us, when we take this entire book, the question is that we must ask ourselves, the question I ask you is how do you approach then the Bible? How then do you read the word of God? Do you see it truly as divine word? Or do you simply read this book as if it's just a bunch of religious myths? You see, what you believe about the Bible will determine how you receive it and how you will live it out. Paul here, Paul here says he gives thanks to God. He's thanking God that the Thessalonians embrace the word as God's word. But by doing so, because the Thessalonians believed that this is God's word, their lives changed. Their lives were radically different. And, and therefore, I want to bring to light for us in this message two implications. Two implications for believing that this indeed is the word of God. Two implications that should impact your faith in your life as a Christian. And what these two implications will demonstrate for us is where it shows us where our hearts are at, where our hearts are aligned with. Right? The title of this message is a test of allegiance. It's, it, what that means is where do you stand when it comes to the word of God? That will demonstrate where your allegiance truly is. And the first implication that we will see here The eternal word of God, meaning this is the truth of God. God's word is eternal. It doesn't change. It does not alter from state to state. It does not alter in its interpretation. God's word does not waver in its meaning. It doesn't lessen in any of its significance. God's word is the same today as it was when it was first written. And it is that way because God himself wrote this word and God himself does not change. Right? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus declares himself as the way and the truth and the life. And when we take that middle term, the truth, when Jesus is the truth, we have to understand that what truth is, is truth is unchanging. Truth is stable. Truth is firm. Truth does not waver. Truth does not compromise. Truth is what truth is. It is what it is because it is true. A truth that changes is not truth at all, right? 
And so what we get here then, when we talk about the eternality of the Word of God, we get a sense that this is the truth that we're all seeking. But there's one thing about the truth that we have to understand. The truth divides. It divides people. You either believe the truth or you're against the truth. You cannot straddle that line. There's no middle ground. There's no no man's land. You have to be on one side or the other. And this is what we can, this is what, then what we see here, right? The church, the early church struggled with this because when they started to believe that this word that was preached to them was the word of God, the truth, they must now stand firm for that. And Paul here, Paul here compares the Thessalonian church to the, to the rest of the churches in Judea. And, and we see here that the early church, right, the early churches in this time, they were suffering. And they were suffering persecution by their own people. Right? When it says here for the, for the churches in Judea, they were suffering persecutions by the Jews, right, their own countrymen. And when it says that, you got to think, these aren't just strangers. These can be their co-workers. These can be their friends, even their own family members. That the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, when, when they became Christians, we find in Acts chapter 17 that they were persecuted by their own local citizens, by their own local government. These are their neighbors. These are people they grew up with. And they accused them. They accused the church of following another God other than Caesar. What we see here is that when you start following the truth of God's word, and that, that becomes an act of betrayal. Right? To the rest of the world, it looks like you're turning against them and they turn against you. And that's just what truth does. Truth divides. Jesus Christ himself declares this, right? In Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 to 36, Jesus says this, do, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his, her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. There's, there's nothing to mince about Jesus' words here. The cost of following, obeying God is an especially high one. <clears throat> and we, we feel this. We feel this tension all the time, don't we? Right, being a Christian today, it's, it's nothing to rave about. I mean, I, I don't think we'll go on Reddit and just post on there, hey, I'm a Christian and I believe Jesus is the only way to salvation. Right? In fact, every day, because we are Christians, we face hard decisions, right? I mean, just think about it. What do we do when our company or school puts out this tolerance policy, which we must affirm together. And in that tolerance policy, we have to affirm the gender choices of every person. 
What do we do in that kind of situation? What do we do when our cousins, when our cousin comes out of the closet, says they're homosexual, and, and even though you might not have never said a word to that person, they think that you are being oppressive because you're a Christian. What do we do when strangers immediately accuse us of being frauds, of being hypocrites, of being Trump supporters or intolerant fools just because we say we believe in a God? What do we do during those times? You see, what happens here is that the truth divides in the world. The world hates the truth. The world wants to suppress the truth. Why? Because the truth, the truth reveals their sins. Right? Jesus, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. When he comes into the world, John chapter 3 says that their sins will be revealed. And the men, they don't want that. They want to cling on to the darkness and hide their sins. But the truth reveals their sins. The truth proclaims them guilty. The truth exposes their shame. It condemns them. Unless they're willing to give up their sins, confess and repent and return to Christ. But instead what we see many times is that the world clings on to their sin. And so the world looks to suppress this truth. They don't want it condemning them. Right? They, 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 don't, they don't want the church to go out there proclaiming that there's some objectivity to their morality, that they are indeed guilty of their sins. No, they, they instead say they must suppress the truth. Right? In verse 15, we get here a sense of what the Jews were doing back then. They, Paul says they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. They drove Paul and the, and the apostles out from town to town. And they displeased God. We see here, we see here that, that the Jews were just simply against this proclamation of the truth. Isn't this how the world treats the church today? Right, our culture, our culture calls Christianity offensive, judgmental. They, they accuse Christians of being intolerant. They, they cast the church. They, they say they're like merciless messengers. They, they blame us for the suffering of the world. They think we're ancient people that we're stuck you know, in, in our old ways and we're unwilling to conform. This is nothing new. This is nothing new. It's, it's not hard to see why the world hates the church so much. Right? They, they look upon the truth of the gospel and what they see is they see handcuffs right, chained up to them. They see restrictions stopping them from living in doing what they want to do. And so what, the, what does the world do? They, they set up roadblocks. They try to prohibit the world from hearing the truth. I mean, just listen to the political debates going on. Right? Each person is pushing their ideology, pushing their philosophy. 
They, they, they're trying to push culture and society further and further away from the gospel to implement their own man's philosophy upon their lives. The world around us today is no different from the Jews. The Jews did everything to stop Paul and the apostles from spreading the word of God. Right? Back then for the Jews, their motivation was selfish. They, it says here that they didn't want the Gentiles to be saved. But today, the motivation is still also selfish. Today, the world wants to stop people. The world wants to stop people from hearing the truth. And they argue. They argue that what we're spreading are just myths, are just legends, stories. What do you face? because of your faith. What unpopular choices did you have to make before the world for your faith? My friends in transit, just, just, just think for a moment of like who we are. I, I know that we are a welcoming fellowship. We, we value community. We, we want to build relations with one another. But what happens when someone enters into our fellowship and their actions threatens the testimony of Christ? What kind of choice will you make then? You see, we have to make difficult choices all the time when it comes to where or not we stand with the word of God truth being proclaimed here. But here's the thing. Even though we do suffer, even though we are persecuted, even though people mock us and people make fun of us, they ridicule us and they accuse us of all these different false accusations. Here's the thing. Our suffering and their persecution only affirms the truth even more. My friends, if this book that we have right here, the word of God, if this was not truth, then the church would have fallen apart years ago, centuries ago. It is the fact that the saints endured. And because they're able to endure, we find comfort. We find encouragement. We find that we are, that we too should be able to hold on to what is written in here in the word of God and to hold on to it like it's the truth. You see, if this, if this book here is truly the word of God, then we should take this seriously, right? The world takes it seriously. You're trying to stop it. We should take this seriously, which means that when we read something like verse 16, and the world is trying to stop us from spreading the word of God so that others won't be saved. What that really means is that if this is what God says here in his word. It means that when we spread the word of God, people will be saved. People will be saved. The truth here that we have in our hands and here written down for us, this truth saves people from their sins. Jesus says that the truth will set you free. That means free from sin, free from condemnation, free from the wrath of God. 
You see, the world, the world doesn't realize the real chains are their sins. And so, when we are mocked, when people do look down upon us, when do people do judge us, don't look upon them with fear. Don't look upon your unbelieving co-workers, professors, family members with fear. Instead, look upon them with compassion. Look upon them with compassion and bear that burden for them. Stand with the truth of God's word, but compassionately, lovingly minister that truth to the unbelieving world because they are blinded by their own sins. This, this here is valuable. This is the truth that we must cling on to. And so we see here then in this first implication that the word of God is indeed eternal and unchanging. It makes this word that we have here truth. And what we see here is that this, this first implication describes naturally what happens to the church when the church aligns herself to God's word, right? This is the natural result of what happens. It presents the reality of the situation that the church is at odds with the world. But the word of God does more than just divide us. The word of God also supplies us with promises from God. The word of God equips us with what we need to endure through the persecution we face. And so the second implication that we see here is that the word of God is effective. The word of God is effective. Is that every time this book here is read, every time this book here is spoken of, it is God who is speaking. This is the God, the Lord. And when he speaks, things happen. Results will get done. In other words, God's will is done through his word. And what we get here then is different consequences. Different consequences of how we then obey God or disobey God. For instance, for unbelievers, for unbelievers, they will face God's wrath. They will face God's wrath. And for us who are indeed persecuted, for us who are indeed oppressed because of our faith, this should give us hope. Because if we are oppressed and we're oppressed unjustly, the cry of our hearts is for justice, right? We're crying out, where is justice? We're crying out, will the unrighteous go unpunished? We're crying out, will God vindicate my suffering? And the answer is that God will vindicate your suffering. Those who mock you will eventually meet their end because ultimately they are mocking God. And so what we see here then, what we see here then is that as the church is being persecuted, the unbelieving world, Paul writes in verse 16, 
they are filling up the measure of their sins. And that's a strange saying. What does that mean? Filling up the measure of their sins. Paul here, he's writing from a theological standpoint. He's saying that God's in charge of all things, even the suffering of his own people. And this phrase, to be filling up the measure of their sins, is, is actually taught throughout Scripture. In Genesis 15, Genesis, all the way back in the Old Testament, first book, God promises Abraham that his descendants will inherit this land. But the problem is that this land currently, when Abraham's there and God's promising him this land, the land was filled with Amorites. And they were evil people. And so, naturally, you would think when God's telling Abraham this, God would just cast out the Amorites immediately, right? I mean, think about what he did with Adam and Eve. He just brooded them out of the garden, right? But he doesn't do that. Instead, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, God says that he will not bring divine judgment and wrath against the Amorites until another 400 years. 400 years. Why? God says it's because their iniquity, their sin, was not yet complete at that time. And so what we see here is that God is working patiently. God is working carefully. He, he, God doesn't just sporadically lash out in anger against mankind. Instead, he's patient. Right? If God was to react to every sin that each one of us committed, man, the world would have been obliviated years ago. No, our God is long-suffering. He's patient. It is only when the sins of each person have reached their full measure, if they haven't repented and confessed Christ to that point, then God's wrath will come upon them at last. Jesus taught the same thing in Matthew chapter 23. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the scribes at that time. And, and and many commentators will compare Matthew chapter 23 to our passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Right? There are similar themes and teachings going on here. For instance, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, Jesus says this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. And so here the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus is saying that you guys don't let other people enter into heaven. That's so similar to how the Jews and unbelievers were stopping Paul and the apostles from ministering the gospel to Gentiles. Similar to how the world today is trying to stop the church from having her own voice. And then in Matthew chapter 23, verse 32, Jesus says this, Fill up then the measure of your fathers. So we can have phrase again, fill up then the measure of your fathers. What does that mean? Jesus continues, verse 33, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, 
And some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on, so that, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakia. And what we get here then, what we get here then is this, this understanding that what it means to be filled up with the measure of the Father is for, these, these, to, for them to kill, to flog, to mock, to persecute the prophets, the messengers, the people of God. Jesus here says he will send prophets to them, men to them. And he knows they're going to be killed. And that, that death was to fill up the measure of these unbelievers' sins. What we get here, what we get here is understanding that our suffering, our suffering at the hands of unbelievers, it's not unexpected. Jesus does not give us the Great Commission thinking that this will be easy. My church got this. No, he, he knows exactly what kind of persecution we will face. There's a purpose behind all of this. And, and, and because there's a purpose behind this, we should take, in fact, great comfort. Because our suffering and our deaths, they're not meaningless. No, they're, they're not random blips in God's plan. All of it. It's part of God's divine wisdom and plan. And the fact is, when the time comes, God's word will have the final say. God's word will have the final say. God will indeed rain down justice upon all people and those who do not come to Christ they will face their end. So even right now, as we know from Revelation chapter 6, that the voices of the martyrs are crying out to God, how long will our blood go unavenged? And God just simply answers them, not yet. Not yet. Not until the number of your own fellow brothers, brothers, people who will be martyred themselves, not until that number is complete. See, God has a plan. And that plan, that plan is for the gospel to be proclaimed. And is written down here in, in the word of God for our sake. You see, we read this and we should have great comfort, great comfort in, in our suffering. That there is hope indeed. That the word of God even when we proclaim it and we get mocked for it, the word of God is effective. It will not be denied. Because no amount of persecutions, no amount of martyrs, no suffering will stop the word of God from coming true. The word we have here is effective and true. God will see that through. And so the consequence then 
the consequence for the unbelievers who persecute the church, they will face God's wrath. But for the believers, for the believers, they will face God's salvation. Note at verse 13 at the end, that the word of God is at work in believers. The word of God is at work in believers. You see, when the, when the Thessalonians truly hold on and believe that this is indeed the word of God, that's the moment the word of God enters their hearts and works in their lives. And so what we see here then, that their endurance through their suffering, their endurance through their persecution, it, it wasn't just this grit and grind. They weren't just like holding out until like as if they're sick and they're just waiting for this cold to pass. It, this, this, this endurance, this perseverance was evidence that the word of God was working in their hearts. And that's what endurance means. Endurance in gospel ministry is faithful obedience to God's word. It's saying, I will not forsake my faith. I will not give up hope. I will put my trust in God because I have his promises contained right here in his word. You see, God's word gives us confidence. It gives us confidence in the face of persecution. Because in believing, in believing in this, in believing the gospel, in believing in Christ, we are declared righteous. We are justified. And that declaration is immediately effective and permanent. Nothing can undo that. Nothing can undo the work of the cross. Once we're forgiven, we're always forgiven. And so then we invite people. We say, bring on your accusations. Let them accuse you. We, even Satan will bring his accusations against you. But we can be sure of this. You can be sure of this. That when God declares you righteous because of your faith, God means it. He will never take that away. In transit, what we have here, let us indeed cling on to it. Let us cling on to the word of God and believe that it is so. Let's not cower in the fear of man. Instead, let's live valiantly in the fear of God. No matter what you face, even in your weakest moments, even in your lowest points, when all hope is lost, put your faith in God. Because God does not forget you. God promises us great promises. Right, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. My friends, this is not an empty promise. God will bless those who are persecuted for their faith. That is God's effective promise for you. Your faith and your suffering will not go unnoticed. Let us consider, let us consider Jesus Christ here for a moment. Right, it says here that he was killed by the Jews. 
his own people. Based on the world standards, that means Jesus was a failure. Right? He couldn't even stop his own disciples from deserting him. Jesus, what did he do? And yet, it is the folly of the cross that makes the wisdom of God wise. Because God here was at work behind the scenes. Because even though Jesus suffered unjustly, unfairly, even though he did not deserve to die on that cross, God raised him up on the third day, showing his proud approval of his son. And that right there is the core and the central truth of this word of God. That is Christ crucified for our sins so that we too can be raised up in righteousness in him. Jesus suffered in order to save you. Therefore, when you, if you were to waver in your faith, what does that say about your savior? What does that say about your belief in this word of God? Stand firm. Stand firm in this truth. See, the world needs the church to stand for this. The world needs the church to stand for the word of God, to stand for truth. They need to witness the faith of God's people because the world is blinded by their sins. And they are building up the wrath of God against them. And what they don't know is that what they're fighting is the only thing, the only person who can save them from the wrath that they're building up against themselves. Guys, we were too once in their shoes. We were too once chained up to the same bondage of sins. We too were once destined for wrath. What set us free? Jesus Christ set us free. He was crucified for our sins. And that's what's revealed here in the word of God. And that's why we shouldn't hide. That's why we don't fight back either. No, all we do is simply proclaim faithfully the good news of Jesus Christ to others. Because as much as the world hates us for claiming it, they need to hear it. In transit, do you look upon this world and do you see people, though there's, there's so much against the church, though they're so against you and your beliefs, do you see them as people who are bondage by their own sin, blinded by their own transgressions? Do you see them as people who need to hear this truth? Let us proclaim then this word. Let us hold on to this word. Let us stand firm with this word. Let us declare our allegiance to this word. Trust in it. For this word of God is the only thing that can save them. Because it's the only thing that can save you. Let us Hold to the truth. Let us declare it to the nations. We pray for us. Father, we thank you for 
truth of your word. And Lord God, we are able to have this great, amazing treasure in our hands. Oh Lord, I pray God that we then will recognize just how undeserving we are to have this word of God before us and how undeserving we are to have Jesus Christ in our lives. Oh Lord, may we then treasure that, be thankful. May we then also boldly proclaim that truth in the face of this world, in the face of persecution. Lord, I ask, Father, that you'll give us the confidence to really cling on, cling on to this book, to the Bible, as if it's your word, you speaking to us. Lord, let us, let us then hold on to this with joy and with confidence. Let us declare it out to the world. Let us minister the word of God always. Thank you, God, for this time. Pray all this in your name. Amen.